Okay, excellent. How was all doing? You all right? We are in Philippians and chapter 3 and verse 17 to 21. So we're going to finish off chapter 3 this morning. Um, it leaves us with one chapter left and probably three more talks on the, the book of Philippians. So reading from verse 17 of Philippians 3, it says this, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the patterns we give you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enabled him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. It may seem strange um, to think that this letter that is so renowned and so filled with joy, that we find Paul in tears. He's weeping in the middle of it. But he wasn't crying about his own problems. He wasn't crying about his circumstances. He had every reason that he could have done, but that is not why he's in tears. In fact, his, his circumstances, as we've said many times, do not rob him of joy. Why? Because his joy is in Jesus Christ. That is the secret to joy, in case you haven't picked it up so far, okay? His joy is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So his tears are not about himself. They are shed because of other people. And he's brokenhearted at the way in which some Christians are living. Now, please note here, Paul is writing to Christians here. These are not people outside of the church. These are people who are involved within church, maybe even within leadership roles within the church. And Paul is once again reminding and urging us at the end of chapter 3 that we follow the right people. We've had the examples already in the previous chapter. The primary example is Jesus Christ, but Paul and Timothy, Epaphroditus, and others are examples of the sort of people that we should follow. But to know who the right people are, sometimes we need to know who the wrong people are. And many people seem to look like good people, but in fact, they are enemies of the cross. Now, Paul is actually most likely referring to the same people he talked about at the beginning of, chapter, of, the, of this chapter in verse 2, the people he talks about as being dogs, as being evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. But these are serious people. They're dedicated. They are religious people, but they are false teachers. They're teaching things that undermine the work of the cross by adding the law of Moses and other um, and other requirements, sort of things like Old Testament dietary requirements and circumcision to the redemptive work that Christ has done for each one of us on the cross. And Paul is saying that these men are not spiritually minded. Instead, they are earthly minded. They're holding on to earthly rituals and to religion 
Now, these are very much involved in church. They go along to church. They're very involved with all that's going on, but they, they are not putting their trust in the Savior who can save them from their sins. They are not trusting in Jesus Christ. And if this can happen in Paul's day, it can happen in our day. And we must watch out for such people. And Paul says you can spot them because they do not live up to the way of the cross. They do not live up to heavenly values. They do not belong to Jesus' side. They oppose the heavenly blessings that is ours in Christ Jesus. And Paul says some rather harsh things about them. He says their destiny is destruction. They're bound for hell. Their God is their stomach. All they want to do is feed themselves and look after themselves. They glory in their own shame. In fact, it's the only glory they will get. The glory does not go to God, and their, their minds are set on earthly things. And by contrast to this, the follower of Jesus is called to be spiritually minded, to look at the things of this world from a heavenly perspective, from a heavenly viewpoint. Colossians 3 verse 2 sums this up probably so succinctly, it says, set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. We need to be thinking and to be looking at the things of heaven. And Paul, the whole purpose of this little section of Scripture is to say, look to the future. Look at Jesus. Look towards heavenly things. It said that D.L. Moody used to used to actually tell Christians off for being so heavenly-minded that they could be of no earthly use. Now, I'm not sure if for many of us that is their primary, our primary problem, nor I'm not even sure I agree with what D.L. Moody was, was saying there, but I understand the point that he's trying to make because as Christians, we have dual citizenship. We are citizens on earth, but also we are citizens in heaven. But as citizens of heaven, we ought to be, it ought to make us better people while we're here on earth. But we should not be attracted to the things of this world. And the decisions that we make and the choices that we do should be based on eternal heavenly values, not on the temporary fads of this world. Now, there are many examples in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture that could, could, uh, could illustrate this, but perhaps the best one is, is that of Lot. Lot was a nephew of Abraham, and Lot was given the choice to make. He could choose any piece of land in front of him, but he chose the well-watered plains of Jordan because it just looked wonderful. It was the worldly, earthly right choice to make. What he didn't know was the devastation and the sin of that area that he picked, so much so that he lost everything as Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of their sin. He literally runs for his life. He loses his wife in the process. And the choices that we make will have consequences to what we do. Or Mark chapter 8, verse 36 puts it like this. What good is it if someone gains the whole world but then loses their soul? And sadly, a reminder what our hearts are really like and how easy it is to put on this sort of respectable, sort of outward appearance, but our motives are often far from pure. And this is what brings Paul to tears. 
This is what breaks his heart as he watches because what he sees is people behaving as if they are just living with some sort of religious facade, a mask that hides the true condition of their hearts, and all the time they remain an enemy to Jesus. And Paul shouts at them, he says, beware, don't listen to such people, their destination is actually hell. And what is worse, they will take you with them if they can. Don't live like this. But there is a right way to living. And you should be a citizen of heaven. And as a result of this, you should show the characteristics of a person whose permanent home is in heaven. In fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, he says, While most people go down the wide, the popular road that leads to destruction, only a few people choose to walk that difficult, narrow path that leads to life. To travel such a road means that you will go against the crowd. It means it sometimes can be a lonely road, particularly in work or at school or college. Everybody may even look at you and think you're somewhat strange. You've lost the plot completely. And Paul says, you're not strange. And Paul gives us five things that we really are. If you choose to walk that narrow, difficult route, that path that leads to life, that leads to heaven, that leads towards Jesus Christ, Paul says, first of all, you are a citizen of heaven. Verse 20, our names are on a heavenly list. Now, the citizens of Philippi had the privilege, they, have, they were Roman citizens, a great honor to be a Roman citizen, and they it meant that when a baby was born in Rome, or sorry, a baby was born in Philippa, Philippi, it was extremely important that they were put on the legal register, that they were registered as Roman citizens, even though they lived nowhere near Rome. They were still Roman citizens. In the same way, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we are born into the family of God and we become a citizen of heaven and our names are written in the book of life. And it's important that we understand this. In the same way, it's, it's, it's a bit like you get a, when you get, you get a new passport and under the bit that says country of origin is written heaven. Your true home is in heaven, even though you must live on this earth for a while. And it's, it's important we get that we, we understand that in the same way that we travel to another country, we need to bring a passport with us as proof of our citizenship, as proof of our identity. Without it, you don't get back home again. I was flying over to Northern Ireland, I think it was last year, and, and I, I don't know what happened. But I got to the airport, and I left my passport at home. I'm, even, I'm walking right up to the guy on the thing, and I'm thinking, pass, oh. You know that sinking feeling you get when you just think, how stupid am I? I go up to the guy, says, to the guy on security, he says, look, I tell, him, I tell him the story, what I've done. And he, he rings through to the, to the airline, and he says, actually, I think we could probably get you to fly over to Belfast. Okay, but I'm not sure we can get you back home again. So I ring Rachel, and of course she's delighted to hear from me. Um, and uh, so we, we have this little conversation, and, and she very lovingly and graciously, without too much complaining, she drives all the way from home to the airport to Liverpool to bring me my passport. 
And it's such a relief. It is such a relief because with my passport in my hand, I know that I can travel. But most importantly, I know I'm going to get back home. And as Christians, as a child of God, your name is written in the book of life. And Jesus is your passport. He is your security. He is the one who determines your ultimate and final destination. In fact, Revelation Chapter 20, verse 15 is quite graphic about this. It says, anybody whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. We don't talk a lot about hell. We don't like it much for obvious reasons. But it's in the scriptures. But when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord on this earth, Jesus will confess us in heaven. And when your name is written down on heaven's record, it will stand there forever. A few years back, I went, to, went down to London. I thought I'd go and see the queen. So I walk up to the door, knock on the door. She says, Keith, come on in. Welcome. Just watch out for the corgis. I step past them a little bit. We have a little chat. She says, how's the... F-? Of course she doesn't. <laughs> The chances of me seeing the queen are so slim, impossible. In fact, if you happen to be lucky enough to get an invitation to one of the garden parties, you will be invited in. But even then, there are conditions. See, even then, you've got to go there, and you've got to bring your invitation with you. You've got to make sure that your name's on the list. If your name is not on that list, no amount of sweet-talking the guard or trying to come up with some excuse or, or begging is going to get you through that door. So it is with your entrance to heaven. It is only through trusting Jesus Christ. We need to admit that we're sinners. Starts there. So we come to Jesus Christ. We ask him to forgive us our sins. Jesus' death was enough to deal with all our sins, past and present and future. But we must come. We must repent, the Bible says. It's to turn from our sins. is to turn to God, to walk towards Jesus Christ. And as we accept him into our lives, Our name is recorded, it's written down on a heavenly record. And you will enter heaven because of Jesus' merit, not of your own. It's only by his grace and by his power, nothing that you will ever do or ever have done is because of Jesus Christ. But the question I must ask, is your name written in the book of life? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Do you know where your destination is? Is it eternity with God forever? Through Jesus it can be. You come just with a simple prayer of faith. The first thing about those who travel that less worn path is that we are citizens of heaven. The second thing we are, we should speak with a heavenly language. See, people with earthly minds talk about earthly things. It means that those who do not know Jesus will actually not understand the things of God's Spirit. But the citizen of heaven understands spiritual things, actually should enjoy discussing them and talking about them. 
I, I don't know, if you, if you find someone who's got a common interest as you, it's actually really easy to talk with them. So quite often after church, um, I'll go and have a chat with, with Carol, and, and we, 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 talk, we talk running, don't we? Pretty much. And we say, how's your legs doing this week? How many miles have you done? Now, anybody listening into our conversation thinking, boy, they're boring, aren't they? <laughs> but we find it really interesting because it interests us. In the same way, if you're a child of God, a citizen of heaven, you will want to talk about heavenly things. You'll want to talk. So you meet somebody from completely across the world who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. How quickly is it before you eventually get on to something to do with God or, or to do with church or just on to spiritual things? Generally, pretty quickly in most cases. That's what First John 4 talks about. It says in verse 4, verse 5, 6, it says, They are from this world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of this world. And the word listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Listen, how people speak and what they talk about says so much about them. And as children of God, as citizens of heaven, we should be talking about heavenly things. To put it another way, you don't need to be around me very long to discover my Northern Irish roots. So you, you meet me, within a few sentences you're beginning to work out, he's not from Cheshire, so he must be from Scotland. No, from, from it must be, I get mixed up for Scottish quite a lot, to be honest, but it must be, so my Northern Irish roots come out because of this accent. It's pretty distinctive. It's pretty obvious where I come from. As a Christian, you should have the accent of heaven. Because speaking a heavenly language doesn't just involve what you say. It actually involves the way in which you say it. Now, it doesn't mean we go around quoting Bible verses all day long. But what it does mean that we are very careful in how we speak, and we speak in such a way that brings glory to God. So let your conversations be full of grace, Colossians 4, 6 says, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. In Ephesians, it explains what that salt seasoning, that illustration is all about. It says, in the same way that salt prevents corruption, do not let any unwholesome talk come from your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. This is how the citizen of heaven talks. They build one another up. They speak encouragement into one another's lives. They talk in such a way that shows that they love and care for one another. So if you are belittling people, if you're using coarse humor, if you're running other people down, that is not heavenly talk. And Paul says you will know people by the way in which they communicate. The third thing is this, that we obey heavenly laws. The citizens of Philippi came under Roman law, not under Greek law. So even though they're hundreds of miles away from Rome, they still are covered under Roman law. And Paul uses illustration to explain how he is governed by heavenly laws. This earth wasn't his permanent home. Instead, he saw himself as an alien, as a stranger, as somebody who's just, just traveling through this world, but he, and he obeys heavenly laws. So he's concerned for others, not for himself. 
His motivation is love. It's not hatred. And by faith, Paul obeys the word of God, knowing that one day he will be rewarded. But sadly, there are so many people around her claiming to be citizens of heaven, but their lives do not show it. They're passionate about religious things. They are extremely disciplined within their lives. They're also very quick to try and point the finger and, and find faults in other people, but there's no evidence that they are being controlled by the Spirit of God. And all that they are doing, it comes from their own efforts. In fact, they get all the glory. God gets no glory in any of this. And it's bad enough that they are going astray, but Paul says they're taking other people astray as well. No wonder Paul is devastated. He's in tears. He's weeping because of this. And Paul is describing two types of people here. The first type are those that are thinking about this world and about themselves. But the second type are those that are thinking about Jesus Christ and about the world that is to come, that are thinking about heavenly laws and heavenly values. And Paul said, you can easily tell who these people are by the way in which they think and the way in which they live. The fourth thing is that we are to be loyal to heavenly values. You know, the theme of the whole of Scripture is God's redemptive plan for this world. And at the very heart of that message is a person, is Jesus. So as we look at the Old Testament and the stories and the prophecies and all the writings woven through them is this, is this, 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 this rich thread that runs and comes ultimately to Jesus Christ and to his death and resurrection. We look at the New Testament again woven through all of that as pointing back to that moment when Jesus Christ died for our sins on the cross and to his resurrection. In fact, Jesus Christ, he is the gospel. He is the source of praise and worship of heaven. And the cross of Jesus Christ is proof that God loves sinners. But it's also proof that God hates sin. But it goes further because the cross condemns and it stands in conflict to the values of this world. It judges mankind. It pronounces the only possible verdict, guilty. It's also at the cross that the Old Testament religion ended and hope began. See, when the veil of that temple was torn in two, now bearing in mind it's not just a little bit of fabric, this is sort of this thick, okay? You don't just rip this with your bare hands. This is a God-divine tearing right from top to bottom of that curtain. And as, as Jesus Christ died, it declared that the way to God was open through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This one sacrifice was enough once and for all for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus ex exclaimed his final words before he died on the cross, when he says, it is finished, he is declaring that by his death and resurrection that these Old Testament rituals are eliminated, no longer needed or necessary. And Jesus has broken down the walls that came between Jew and Gentile. Now both can come to God in exactly the same way. Equal opportunity through Jesus Christ. But these false teachers were trying to rebuild these walls that Jesus Christ has broken down. And in doing so, they are fighting against the work of the cross. 
And if we try to add even a little thing onto the gospel and the simplicity of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are fighting against the work of the cross. We are fighting against Jesus Christ. It is the cross that is the center in the life of the believer. They do not glory in other people. They don't glory in religion. They don't glory even in their own achievements. They glory only and always in Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the gospel has been crucified in me and I to this world. And heavenly values are centered on the cross of Jesus. We must never move from there. We must never move from that place of the cross, of the foot of the cross, where our hope has been found, where our salvation has been bought. I love that hymn that we sometimes sing this time of, time of year, real oldie. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for the world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. It was because of that old rugged cross that the citizen of heaven has a bright future that we rejoice in Jesus Christ. Particularly poignant this week, is it not? And Sue has gone to, glo to, to, gone to glory to be with her Savior. And she knows what we, I guess, only know looking sort of unclearly at, she knows in complete fullness the power of the cross. Called her home. She worships and praises God with her Savior, with her Lord. Even now. That's the hope that we have with the eternal values, heavenly values, the cross of Jesus Christ. The fifth thing is this. We are looking for Jesus. You know, our glorious King is hidden, hidden to us right now. But we should be anxiously waiting for his return. When everybody will see how wonderful he is. In fact, there is a day coming, and Paul talks about it in the beginning of chapter 2. He says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God to the glory of God the Father. When Rachel and I were going out about five months or so, I left Cardiff University. I went to take a job back over in Belfast. It meant that for the next 12 months, we were, had this long-distant relationship on either side of the Irish Sea. And we used to see each other about every six to, to eight weeks. We used to write letters, and we, we made phone calls, but it's not really the same as actually seeing someone. I used to sometimes just count down the weeks, sometimes just down the days till, we would, till I would see her face to face again. And it's this, 
type of longing and waiting and just forward-looking that Paul is, is talking about here. And the key, the key word at the end of this chapter is that we look or we wait for Jesus. And the true Christian lives for the future. Looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ, their Savior. And there should be this anticipation of, of Jesus' return that motivates our spiritual minds, that, that just keeps us looking forward, looking towards the coming, to his coming, looking towards heavenly values and heavenly things. And there are examples, of course, all the way through the Bible of this, men like Abraham, the great patriarch of the Old Testament, who by faith, he was content to live in tents, knowing that one day he was going to live in the city of his God. People like Moses, Moses who's willing to give up all the luxuries and wealth of, of, of Pharaoh's palace, who, by, who, was, who looked for the rewards of heaven. In fact, he's willing to give up all the treasures of this earth for heavenly things. Or it was because of the joy that was set before him that Jesus was willing to endure the cross. And the fact that Jesus is returning again, and listen, he is coming back again. The fact that he's coming back should be a powerful motivator for us to dedicate our lives to him today, to live for him with all of our lives. And the spiritual, the heavenly mind does not live for the things of this world, but he and she is just looking towards heavenly things, looking towards a world that is to come. Not and as we live, we live in faithful obedience to God, not for the things of this earth doesn't mean, of course, we ignore the practical day-to-day -day responsibilities each one of us have within life, but what it does mean that when we face different questions and every decision that we make and everything that we do, we do it for God's glory. We do it, and it should be shaped by Jesus. And Paul says, look forward. Keep looking forward. He gives us two more reasons why we should be looking heavenward. Not only will we see Jesus to face, but we are going to receive a glorious new body. It says, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, you will be made new. That's 1 Corinthians 15. If you're struggling with aches and pains at the moment, the day coming when this body will be made completely new. And all the things of this world will seem worthless to you in comparison to the glory of Jesus. So live for the future with your eyes on eternity and look for the things that really matter within your life. But Paul says there's a second thing as well, that Jesus will subdue all things on that day. This literally means he will arrange things into their proper order but actually, we need to sort some of these things out in our lives right now. We need order in our lives right now. And if you are a citizen of heaven, you need to begin to think and actually behave like one. You know, it's so easy to get our priorities completely wrong. We, we actually can waste a lot of time and energy doing useless things, useless activities. In fact, our vision gets clouded so easily just with circumstances, with, with good things so often, and we, we, we take our eyes off the ultimate goal of the future that we have in Christ. Perhaps a good question that we should be asking ourselves is this. 
Is the return of Jesus a motivation within my life? Do I even think about it? Is it something that I ever even wake up and, and think about even for a second? See, living for eternity means allowing Jesus to arrange the things in my life into their proper place, to believe the promises of God, to put them into practice within my life, to live with heavenly and eternal values in mind. I wonder, is that the way that you're living? Is it the way I'm living? And Paul says, if you want to walk that narrow path, that road that few people choose to walk, that road that is with Christ and towards Christ and in Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. We should know because you speak with a heavenly language. You have heavenly values. You obey heavenly laws, but mostly you're looking to Jesus. Your eyes are on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're looking for your future, which is safe and secure in Christ. Is that you? So we should be. So Paul says we should be living. Keep our eyes on such things. Let's just stand together. We're going to pray as we bring things to a close. Father, we, we do thank you, Lord, for the encouragement within your word, Lord, but also it comes with challenge because, Lord, you, by your spirit, Lord, you show those areas, Lord, that need to be dealt with. So, Father, I pray lift our gaze this morning. Lift our gaze heavenward for your glory and for your honor, Lord. I pray, Father, that we would be truly heavenly-minded in all that we do, Lord. As we, as we live like that, Lord God, it provokes us, it pushes us, Lord God, to bring blessing to this world in which we live as well, Lord, to be calling, to be calling others, Lord, into your kingdom. So, Father, we pray that lives, Lord God, just do a deep work within us, Lord, that we may be a blessing to those around us, we pray in Jesus' name. And Father, in light of that, I pray, Lord, even for Friday, for this Friday as we go onto the streets, Lord, I pray, Father, we bring something of your blessing and your glory, Lord, onto the streets, Lord, as we meet people there, Lord, as we reach um, and chat to, to the, the, Lord, just the, the folks of the city, Father, we pray, may your glory fall. Lord, may we take heaven, Lord, with us as we walk into our workplaces, into our schools and colleges, Lord, and to the streets of the city. For your glory and for your honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.